Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. Phil Harling is the John R. Gaines Professor of the Humanities and Director of the Gaines Center for the Humanities. I've been a faculty member for, it says, almost a quarter of a century. That couldn't be right. What is that? That must be a... It's all too true, Bill. (laughs) You're you're too young. Uh, And um, you are our inaugural first-time Think Humanities guest. I didn't know whether you knew that when you walked in the room. Well, how flattering is that? It sure is. Boy, I'm not going to try to think about that too much. Could go to my head. Tell me... uh, about you, first of all, uh, where you're from. Uh, I just got, uh, we did record one before you came in uh, with uh, a wonderful uh, linguist, uh, Dr. Jennifer Kramer, and uh, she, we talked about dialect and and where people are from. I know you're not supposed to end a sentence with a, uh, uh, or a question with a preposition, but we do that uh, in Kentucky uh, when we ask what county you're from. Right. Uh, so tell me about your background. Well, I'm from Cook County, which is in the great state of Illinois. Um, grew up in Evanston, just north of the city of Chicago. Um, a lifelong Cubs fan, so last year was a very memorable one for me and just about everybody I knew growing up. Um, I did my undergraduate work at a tiny college in Iowa called Grinnell College. Um, probably about, boy, 1,200 students when I was there. I think it might be a little bit bigger now, but not much. Uh, then went on to Princeton where I did my master's and PhD in history and British history is my specialty, mostly the Victorian era, um, uh, Britain and the empire in the, in the long 19th century. Um, I teach a lot of 20th century history here at UK, probably um, by far the most students on campus know me as the voice of a course called War and Society 1914 to 45 where many of them don't see me because the, uh, the lecture version of the course is in a digital format. Um, they might see my, my ugly mug and, and a short video introduction, but mostly I'm talking through a lot of lectures on murder and mayhem in the first half of the 20th century. And so a lot of people, when they hear my voice on campus, their ears sort of perk up and I know exactly what's going on um, because I'm mostly known as a voice. So this is a very appropriate format for me. What interested you uh, as a college student or uh, even when you were in high school leading up to uh, Grinnell uh, about history? What was it about? Did you have a a history teacher or a mentor or someone who really uh, began to uh, talk to you uh, about uh, history and historical facts and and what really got you involved? I was privileged to have a whole crew of teachers going back to middle school and very strongly reinforced in, co- in, in, in high school and college who were deeply invested in history as a human drama as a series of ripping yarns, which actually also revealed some broader themes about the human condition, about the society in which we find ourselves and which we aspire to live in. And the slippage between those two things is something that's always interest, interested me very greatly. Um, I, I know from a lot of experience with undergraduates that um, there's still kind of a preconception 
among non-historians that history is about chronology, about memorizing dates and names and um, where battles took place and when. And I guess there is a, a minor element of that. But for me, it's all about the human drama. And uh, I had a bunch of instructors who really um, made that come to life for me. So I was really privileged to go to college with a pretty good idea that teaching history was something I wanted to do. And fortunately for me, my experience uh, in college and graduate school never disabused me of that notion. And now I'm well over 50 and I've, you know, at least with respect to the historical discipline, I, I'm very fortunate not to have suffered a midlife crisis, at least not yet. Um, I still find it really engrossing and enthralling. What do you read? Boy, you know, I read a whole um, bunch of stuff. Um, and lately, I've been reading a lot on the British Empire in the 19th century, um, which is an endless feast. Of course, here we're talking about a country about two and a half times the size of Kentucky geographically that ended up planting its flag on literally over a quarter of the Earth's surface around about 1900, ruled directly or indirectly over well over a quarter of the Earth's population. So that means that my reading on the job tends to be very diverse. Um, and so that's a great benefit to me as well. I think like a lot of other people, I'm probably spending way too much time reading the newspapers these days mm. because there's so many great stories coming up every day and talk about a human drama playing out before our eyes. So uh, you name it, and I, I try to engage with it. Is that going to be someone else's history um, in another generation or uh, another uh, a couple of hundred years that people will look back at this time and, and read the history of, uh, of these times? I suspect it will be, Bill. Of course, we have no idea exactly how it's going to play out, and that's one of the great um, things about it. But I feel that the institutions of our country are coming under a kind of stress that I certainly haven't experienced in my thinking lifetime. It's hard to know exactly how that's going to play out. I think we have some fascinating geopolitical forces at work here. And the relative stability of the um, post-World War II era um, really, I, kind, I, I think it kind of began to crumble when I, when I was in grad school, because then you had the, uh, the great um, people's risings in Eastern Europe. You, you, you had the end of the Cold War. You had the corner that was almost turned in China, um, although I think arguably in certain ways it, it wasn't politically, although it certainly was, I think, economically. Um, I think um, the status of the U.S. as a great power is certainly still there, but I think we're living in now, to my mind, a multipolar world, which is a bit ironic because I think even a decade ago, a lot of people were talking about it was no longer um, a world with two spheres. It was a world of one sphere with the U.S. kind of leading the way. I think a lot of people are questioning that right now for a variety of reasons that I find fascinating. And those are? Well, um, I, I, I think, I think ooh, part of it is a search for what global leadership means in a world when there's no longer a Cold War, when the Second World War is now a very rapidly receding memory, um, where even some of the last direct participants are, are, are beginning to die out. It's going to be hard to find a veteran of World War II sadly, to have an oral interview with in a decade. Um, and so as a result of that, some of those post-war 
certainties, um, American leadership being one of them, um, are, I think, being called into question in a variety of ways. It, it seems like to me, and admittedly, my understanding of history uh, is more in, in modern times, and I'm talking about in, in, this, in this century, and, uh, but how people reacted to a, a president, or let's just go back uh, not that long ago to the Depression, and I was just at um, a state park in Tennessee, and it was built by the Civilian Conservation Corps, and they have uh, Pickett State Park uh, in Jamestown, Tennessee. They have a, a really nice, very small museum, but very well uh, laid out with a lot of facts and figures and that sort of thing. And it really uh, took uh, took me back to uh, a, a place that I had not thought about uh, recently, but about the struggles uh, that the president uh, had at, during that time and about the state of the country. And it also made me think a little bit more deeply about comparing, and again, that's not that long ago, but comparing that time with some of our more recent times and what we consider to be crisis today. And we know that there are efforts uh, underway for a, um, uh, they don't, it's not called a Civilian Conservation Corps. Other presidents have have started other uh, entities like the Peace Corps and, and AmeriCorps and things like that. I, I don't think there's a label on this, but the infrastructure uh, uh, challenges that we have in this country. So do you think, are historians recording this uh, and, and what's going on today and comparing it to what happened in, in the Depression or, or earlier when, when presidents and countries were challenged? I think there's always a tendency to do that, Bill. Um, one thing that's interesting to me in thinking about the uh, the decade of the 1930s is the the sense of, of deep crisis in which the U.S. and so many other Western countries and Eastern countries found themselves. I mean, that was an unprecedented uh, economic cataclysm, the Depression, in the modern era. People's life savings were wiped out overnight. In many countries, uh, in Europe especially, you had a kind of hyperinflation that went along with unemployment that reached into the into the low 20%, 20th percentile um, in countries like Germany, um, which is why I think the, um, the, the recession kicked off by the sort of mini crisis of 08, 09 is what we point to as kind of epoch changing in terms of our notions of economic stability, which of course have all sorts of knock-on effects on our sense of political order and what the role of government ought to be. Um, it seems like relatively small to potatoes at this point relative to the Depression. Um, and as a result, I think, thankfully, we don't have quite the sense of crisis and the fairly dire political consequences that tend to stem from crisis. Although, of course, greatness c often comes out of crisis. I remember having a pretty typical sort of cocktail conversation with a friend the other day where we were arguing over, you know, for whom will we vote for greatest president in U.S. history? And uh, I think both of us kind of agreed that it was, um, we were debating between Abe Lincoln and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and we tend to think of both of them as larger than life figures, but of course it's the, uh, it's the circumstances that make the individual. Um, they happen to be present at a time of unprecedented crisis in our nation's history. They were faced with challenges that other chief executives 
have never had to face. Um, they roasted them in their own kind of way. Um, I think FDRs gave an opening to a kind of big government, which was then greatly accelerated by the circumstances of, of the Second World War. Um, since we're not facing a crisis of quite those proportions right now, there's still a debate about what the proper role of government should be. And of course, one of the great polarizing questions in US politics today, throughout my lifetime, and I think yours too, is what role should especially the federal government play? How big should it be? What should, it dimension, what should its dimensions look like? And of course, that's a fairly profound historical question. Um, through much of the 19th century, the US government basically, well, for, for decades after the American Civil War, its chief function was to pay pensions to veterans. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of spending on for public pur purposes at the federal level beyond the defense of the realm fairly narrowly conceived. I think it took the um, historical circumstances of two global conflicts in which the US played an ever greater role to change the perception of what the proper role of the federal government ought to be. It's not surprising with my historian's hat on to think that that role has been um, challenged and questioned um, very, very seriously over the last 30 or so years as we recede further and further back from those unprecedented crises and, and the triggers for them. I want you to talk a little bit about how you make history come alive for some of your students, uh, for all of your students, and whether or not that is more of a challenge today than it has been. And I want to give you just a little example of uh, of someone that you know of uh, that I heard speak uh, uh, just a, a few days ago, Dr. Edward Ayers, uh, the former president of the University of Richmond and a historian in his own right. And brought him here to give a talk two years ago, and it was fantastic. He's a great presenter. He sure um, is. And a, a shameless plug uh, here for our Kentucky Book Fair in November, uh, on November the 18th, where he has a new book coming out in the fall, and we're going to do our best to get him uh, uh, at our uh, Kentucky Book Fair. Fantastic. Um, but he was... Um, he was uh, not a lifelong historian. He didn't really have an interest in, in becoming a historian until he got into graduate school. And uh, he uh, told the audience uh, that he said something to his mother about changing from, I think he was maybe in another discipline, but uh, he said, I, I, I think I'm gonna uh, look at history. And she said, why? We already know everything that happened. And um, I, I'm sure that's maybe you've run into that all of your life or maybe with some students. And, and he seems to me to be taking a, a different track, although he's, he's writing on uh, the history of the Deep South and of uh, Virginia, his state. But he's also looking at it uh, in, from a digital standpoint. And I want you to, to tell our listeners how exciting that is for all of you uh, to really uh, go back and and look at records in a in a in a whole different way just because of, of digitization and computerization of of historical facts. Well, I think those of us who are working historians love to dig around. I mean, it's something that we we really enjoy doing, and so the great promise um, of of digital humanities, particularly with with respect to history, is making primary sources, letters, diaries. Uh, census records, marriage licenses, um, available at the, at the touch of a, of a button. Um, Ed Ayers has been revolutionary in this respect. He's put together some of the 
greatest sort of um, digital data sets for actually doing history that I'm familiar with. And so it, it, it makes it much easier for us to give our students an opportunity to mess around with the historical record. And that um, leads to a kind of heightened empathy with people in past time, which is, I think, one of the incredibly important and deeply um, civically valuable functions of, of actually doing history um, to develop it. There isn't, it's hard to find another way of connecting with another human being across space and time than reading a letter they wrote to a loved one. Um, and I've been really privileged to have the opportunity to present hundreds of students with the opportunity to do that. It's even better when they can literally get their hands on it, I'm here to tell you. Um, there's nothing quite like taking them to an archive where they can literally get their fingers dirty if they're not made to wear gloves, which they often are. Um, just uh, last semester, I, and again, in, in connection with this War and Society course, um, I had them go to the special collections here at UK. They have terrific material on um, Kentucky at war. And uh, to see 18-year-olds hold up a, a telegram and, you know, what is this thing? I've never encountered anything like this in my life. What is this? And to, uh, and to read it um, and to engage with the person who wrote it or the letter written by a wife to her husband at the front with all of the personal circumstances that are, are revealed, the quality of the handwriting, what it looks like, what the letter smells like, um, leads to a kind of intimacy with the past, which I just think is really important for us to respect the fact that we were part of an endless kind of historical succession. We are creatures of the moment, but um, there are influences way beyond our consciousness, our historical consciousness that have shaped us, that shape who we are. And we can access some of those materials. So there's an immediacy to that, and there's a sense of connection to that, and empathy, which is, I think, terribly important. At the same time, it also helps students to understand that the past is indeed a foreign country. Um, this is something I like to reinforce. In many ways, um, our job is to, to try to understand how our ancestors were fundamentally different from us and why they were. And so part of my job is to try to get students to appreciate both of those things simultaneously, that um, the Victorians, in my case, are a lot more approachable than you might have thought they were. On the other hand, they acted in ways that we would find highly eccentric, but they weren't eccentricities by their standards. So what were their standards? Let's try to figure that out. And I think that leads to a better understanding of human difference in the here and now. And if that isn't a critically important part of a liberal education, I'm not quite sure what is. Do you find that your students and the students uh, you are engaged in conversation with, uh, I would think the fellows at the Gaines Center, which I want you to talk about in just a moment, but I would think that they, they already come with a certain amount of interest. But what about just uh, undergraduate students uh, that, that are um, maybe questioning which way to go? Is there still, is there still life after history uh, uh, in, uh, at the university level? Absolutely. And, and here, you know, in, in, in answering this perennial and critically important question, what do I do with this? Um, there are several answers. I think the most compelling one is that any degree um, in any humanities subject is going to 
allow you to take a fairly rich and complicated data set and make sense of it in multiple different ways. That's an incredibly broadly transferable skill that you can bring with you into a couple hundred different professions. Um, it should, if we're doing our job properly, um, enable our students to leave here with the ability to look somebody in the eye or an audience in the eye and speak to them clearly, articulately, and compellingly. Um, it should allow our majors and our graduates to form compelling arguments out of that mess of data that I pointed to earlier. What are the three or four critically important nuggets that I need to be able to convey? And it should provide students with the opportunity to um, write in a way which is engaging and accessible. The more specific specialist training um, needs to accompany these broadly transferable skills, but I think those are critically important foundations that I would argue only a humanistic education can provide. I'm a little biased toward history because I think um, we emphasize research skills probably and, 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 and dealing with an even broader variety of, of different sources to, that you need to make sense of than is maybe true of some of our sister disciplines in the humanities. But all of them provide um, students with that kind of basic toolkit, which you need to be a successfully functioning human being post-graduation. What do you make of this, um, the, the current um, discussion, if not argument, about uh, the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math, versus humanities, or is there is there any need to have the verses in there? Uh, talk a little bit about the debate that you uh, and I both hear across the country. Well, I th I've always felt that it was a false dichotomy, um, and that's a false dichotomy which um, I think historically we've we've often been tempted to make at certain moments more than others. You know, the great British scientist and novelist C.P. Snow talked about the two cultures back in the 1950s, and he wrote a bunch of books um, really trying to sort of convey uh, to the broader world that um, you need both. You need human beings that are conversant in both simultaneously. Um, you, need a, you need scientists who are uh, curious about contemporary events. You need humanists who have a basic understanding of how the sciences operate. Um, uh, so I spent a lot of my time as interim dean of the... Uh, Lewis Honors College and as the director of the Gaines Center for the Humanities here on campus, working closely with aspiring scientists who are deeply interested in the human drama. They want to read novels. They want to talk ideas that go beyond biology or chemistry, although they're deeply interested in those and uh, in other bench science disciplines as well. Um, they're interested in being more interesting people. And in order for that to happen, they need to be able to take their vocational interests and put them into a broader setting that connects them to the world around them. For aspiring scientists, their own research ambitions are central to who they are as human beings, but they need to be able to talk about them in ways that um, a broader audience can find compelling. And that's where the kinds of communication skills that I pointed to earlier become critically important for them. So. I sense a yearning, particularly among highly motivated undergraduates, to be a well-rounded person. Um, I don't think that that's a cliche. I think that's something that they want to live. Um, 
they're fairly confident that they're going to get gainful employment at the end of the rainbow. I am too. We don't entirely take that for granted, and we, we certainly do our best to provide them with the marketable, marketable skills they, they need to make on the job market. Um, but probably more importantly, to be honest with you, and something that we're doing simultaneously, is to try to make them more curious and therefore more interesting human beings. And they want that. There's a hunger for that. Tell me about the, uh, the Gaines Center for the Humanities on the campus. Well, um, I'm, I'm privileged to direct um, a center that's been around on the UK campus for over 30 years now. Um, it was the joint vision of uh, the great local philanthropist John Gaines and uh, Ray Betts, a predecessor of mine in the UK History Department, um, who actually was one of the people who interviewed me when I was a young pup looking for work here at UK. Um, Ray and John had a vision for a humanities center that would cater particularly to undergraduates, and that's what makes the Gaines Center, so far as I know, unique. There are many humanities centers in the country. Um, there are estimable, estimable, estimable institutions, and they do what they do very well. But what they tend to do is to bring in um, on fellowship faculty members from other universities so they have... Um, less structured time to research and to write. They might do a little bit of teaching while they're acting as visiting scholars, but mostly they're pursuing their own scholarly agendas. What's different, and I think unique about the Gaines Center, is that we provide fellowship funding to UK um, upperclassmen. They apply as sophomores, and it's a two-year program in the junior and the senior year. Um, we take in 12 fellows a year. So at any given time, I'm, I'm working with usually no more than 24 of UK's best and brightest. They have majors all over campus. Um, the one thing they have, well, they have a couple of things in common. They're very highly motivated students. They perform well, but they're also interest, interested in, in, in being something more, in broadening their horizons, and hopefully the program helps them to achieve that. You bring in speakers from all across the country, uh, all across the world. Uh, the uh, One of those avenues uh, is the Bail Boone Symposium. Uh, give me just a brief uh, synopsis of one or two or three of those uh, speakers that you've heard of that, that you've exposed the students to over the years. Yeah, you know, the Bail Boone Symposium is um, something that we've been fortunate. It's, it's an endowed sort of speaker series, and we typically uh, address a different theme every year. Um, one really interesting year, um, not terribly long ago, the, the theme was Growing Kentucky. And so I think we brought in Wendell Berry under that heading. Uh, a lot of other luminaries who were interested in sort of um, agrarianism writ large and the importance of being in touch with our agrarian roots. There was a dimension of that programming that had to do with um, locally sourced food, which is obviously since then, in, in the decade or so since then, has really taken off. Um, this coming year, we're going to be featuring um, the experience of being an immigrant and, and a stranger in a strange land. And we're very excited to be bringing in the distinguished novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, who was a Vietnamese-American who uh, recently won the Pulitzer Prize in fiction. Um, for his engrossing novel called The Sympathizer, which is uh, the story of a North Vietnamese double agent who continues to be a spy after the Vietnam War comes to an end and emigrates to California. 
it's a really um, mesmerizing tale. Um, he also more recently was a finalist for the National Book Award in nonfiction for a series of essays that he, that he wrote about Vietnam, America, and being a Vietnamese American. Um, and I think these sorts of reflections are particularly timely in this moment when the issue of immigration looms so large in, in the American public sphere, in the global public sphere for that matter. So it's a privilege um, with the Balboon to make this a sort of movable feast where sometimes we can zoom in and really focus on the local, um, on the Commonwealth, um, and share our Commonwealth in, in, in certain exceptional ways. Uh, other times we take uh, a wide angle lens to, uh, to global affairs, and that's what we're doing with um, Viet Thanh Nguyen coming in. So that's just a couple of examples. Phil Harling, uh, thanks for being our first guest on uh, Think Humanities podcast. Uh, Phil Harling, the uh, director of the Gaines Center for the Humanities at the University of Kentucky. Uh, you'll have to come back and visit. Bill, it's been such a privilege. Thank you so much for putting on this um, podcast, and I, I wish you all prosperity with this new and exciting endeavor. Thanks a lot. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. <laughs>